Section 16 of An Itinerant House and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Scano. An Itinerant House and Other Stories by Emma Frances Dawson. Are the Dead Dead? Part 1 Who shall determine the power of sympathy or assign to that power its limit? My story is so strange that I cannot expect many to believe it. Only a short time ago, I myself would have scoffed at such a tale. I would not tell it, but for the faint hope that it may lead others, if such there be, to own to any like experience, for I cannot think that I alone, of all the world, have had such glimpse of the mysterious, outlying region usually veiled from mortals. Whoever you are, now about to read what comes, I implore you, comfort me, if you can, by writing. I, too, have heard and seen. Come forward and share any burden before I lose my mind. Marvel not that I grant the request of the club which asked for this statement. Since that awful experience, I feel lifted above the paltry secret keeping of this world. I own our spiritual kinship. On the day of judgment, all will be known. Why should I hesitate to give now a brief account of what, after all, might have happened to anyone? for we are all tangled in strange meshes of circumstance. But it must be seldom that one is allowed to see how one's thoughts or acts here may, long after one is gone, affect people one may not have known. To see how, before unguessed, life might have been different. To find that one's passions last as strong as in life or stronger. But are they not oneself? Without them, we might as well be lost in the universal spirit of the Brahmins. That no one has seen and heard such proof of this until now weighs nothing against it. Sir John Herschel has said that of all the fusions that might be of the fifty or sixty elements which chemistry shows there are on the earth, it is likely, nay almost sure, that some have not been made. Those who cannot understand my story should remember that, to the blind, the touch of ice or fire is the same. Those who doubt this tale are like the Indian prince told by Hume, who would not think there could be ice. I have another reason for writing this. I owe it to the club upon which I rather force myself to tell the cause of my abject terror when they saw nothing. I know some of them thought I was crazed. They will feel sure of it, perhaps when I say that, so far as human judgment could go. It seemed to me at first that my joining them sprang from the wealth of bloom this year on the great heliotrope under my parlor window and from a chance call. But now they seem but links in a chain, running into past and future beyond our ken. I filled a vase on my piano with the flowers whose strong, sweet, 
wine-like odor led me to rhymes then i played and sang till through the dreamful scent and the charm of music i was wrapped in clouds far above the world and so little pleased to have a caller that i paid slight heed to him and on the plea of playing for him did some hard practice till with aching arms i turned round to find he had caught up the leaf of note-paper i had written on and was placing his eyeglass to see what it was with some notion that it was a joke to do so he read aloud my title rondel strange death of passion freets the heavy scent of heliotrope there breathes a discontent from pallid purple upon snow upthrown like haze of hills afar with white clouds blent all vague regret and mad desire seem lone from odor blown sweet things that never were pervade my thought as when sad music sounds with yearning fraught that makes the present pass behind two tears all that the future may unfold seem not some past unknown was blessed too quickly veers the lap of years i cannot read nor sing i only sigh a haunting presence in my room is nigh i suffocate with the delicious dole what spirit stronger than my own is by is this fierce will that can my mind control the flower soul <laughs> said he you ought to join the ghost club what do you mean i asked i had not heard of one well it is kept quiet he said but it is a small club whose members go to houses said to be haunted to see what truth there may be in the tales you know that one out in valencia street near fifteenth they had spent some time there and in the large house here in town on sutter street which was vacant so long and at last taken with its fine grounds for a beer garden what happened i asked was anyone frightened into a fit no said he they have seen nothing yet but if you watch tomorrow night you will see them marching up here to the house over the way i began to be interested that house i said i did not know anything was the matter with it but i know it has long been to let i did not tell him what a part of my reveries it had been not only for its picturesque look but because of the music i had once heard from its windows it is not easy to let he went on because the first owner poisoned himself there why don't you join the club you are fanciful enough i can give you letters to the chief members i might for fun i said i have no faith neither have they they call it a quest for truth i let him write the letters two to women one to a man three out of the seven who formed the club the last thing that night i paused by my window to look over at the house square high dark outlined against the stars far above the street which was cut through the hill 
at some date since the building of the house, which stands near the head of about a hundred zigzag steps, with landings here and there at the turns, the first flight boarded from the street, and looking like a switch tender's hut on a railroad. Behind an uncared-for garden of dusty evergreens, and half-hidden in yellow and white jasmine, the lonely house, with its closed windows, made me think of a giant with shut eyes lying in a garden under a spell. Did it ever dream? Sometimes I have believed in flitting lights and changeful shadows behind one shutterless window upstairs, but thought it must be the reflection of the headlight of a passing streetcar dummy. That house had long been like a conscious comrade in my daydreams. It was linked in my mind with an offer of marriage I once had from one for whom I cared very little, but whom circumstances nearly brought me to accept. But through the open windows came such a strain of warning music that, creatures of chance impulses that we are, swayed by a look or a tone, my mind changed in spite of me. I was lifted out of my usual self and had strength to do right. I never knew anything of the unseen singer but his love for his art, as shown by daily study which I heard. That sound which was a soul surely saved me from making my life a mere hard, rude outline, from losing all the picturesque effects of light and shade which romance, hope, and feeling give. But it was strangely done by making the man at my feet so suddenly hateful to me. I could not help wishing to join the ghost club, though I thought our pains would be vain. I felt a strange interest in the plan. It made me restless that night. While dressing in the morning, I looked up again at the lonesome-looking house, and, nodding gaily toward it, cried, You have haunted me. No one could have felt lighter-hearted and more free from dread than I, as during the day I presented my letters and gained consent to my joining the club for that one house. Heaven knows I have now no wish to thus visit another. When the club gathered that night at the doorway to the steps over the way, I joined them. A queer group, a believer, a doubter, an inquirer, a strict church member, and others who came, as I did, for pastime. Some were late and had not yet come when we wound up the long stairs and waited at the door for someone who was to bring the key. Nothing is too strange to happen, said the inquirer, who with his wife seemed gravely exploring a strange region. There is nothing which may not be in the wide margin of the unknown around all we know. The Bible tells us, said the pious man, there is a universe to us invisible, but not, therefore, unreal. But I cannot think, said the doubter, that those who have gone there think of us, for death remembers to forget. Yet Isaac Taylor thought, said the believer, the human and extra-human crowd might be within any given bounds, but as they are commonly unseen and unheard by us, so we may be the same to them. 
like the voices the talmud tells of said the jewess laden with flesh and lace and diamonds the sounds which pass through your world and are not heard by any creatures in it he nodded and went on young stilling and oberlin also held we can be only ghosts to them as they to us no one ever saw a ghost not made by his fancy said the doubter a jew it is always like that german tale of a student who fought a duel with a spectre who when he dropped the cloak from his face was seen to be himself that is why the club was formed said the believer doctors own that more than one may have had an illusion but say there is no such thing as delusion for a group of people the pious man patted my spitz dog he may see more than we can said he as balaam's ass saw the angel yes said the joker to speak by the card when we are within an ace of meeting hobgoblins and the juice is to pay trey will knock spots out of them <laughs> as we went into the house i found in the man who had the key an old neighbor why mr h i cried he started nervously and looked around in great surprise mr w said he are you here with those asking eyes of yours <laughs> oh i don't believe in it i laughed i'm only curious like the rest not so much then as since i have thought of his strange look at me and the shrug of his shoulders which seemed to lift me off his mind for he paid no more heed to me that night the others glanced here and there through the open doors with an eager air in marked contrast with mr h's studied unconcern they noticed his manner and spoke of it i never look about me in this house he said gravely or in any of these old places he added and hurried off the inquirer plunged down the steps caught him on the first landing and cried why why not mr h hesitated well you might look for the ghosts of the restless roving folks who wandered to california he answered and ran down as we stood in the hall the believer made us a speech about being in a fit state and urged that we should be placed in rooms by ourselves or no more than two together though after some wrangling we were allowed a light in each room we were to sit idle and not speak i was left in a small room with a window on the street the others went where he told them the silence which soon reigned made it seem as if there was no one in the house fearless as i had always boasted of being a strange dread at last settled on me i could not lose that feeling as of someone just at the door which we know in vacant furnished houses i tried to forget why we came i counted each way the figures in carpet and curtains i noticed all in the room the common and uncommon from chairs table and sofa to a veiled picture and an old-fashioned secretary whose torn green silk behind the glass doors showed some stray leaves of manuscript 
I wondered in which room the old owner took poison. Supposing it to be true, as some had thought, that suicide chains the spirit to earth, why should we know it? What right had we to pry into the unknown? I shrank from the test and was seized with nervous trembling. Even my dog grew restless and ran home just as, much to my relief, a late comer entered the house. He came in the room where I was, a shy, quiet young man, who went toward the window, but, suddenly seeing me, started, stared, and dropped into a seat. It struck me some way that he was in awe of me. I was half amused to think he might be taking a stranger for a ghost. Long we sat amid the shadows, silent and strange, as if both by some spell called up from the shades by the club. The oil lamp burned dimly. I faintly saw my companion's glowing eyes and fine profile, like that an antique vase or coin, and the small spray of the breath of heaven's snowflake flowers that, with the blood-red pink, he wore as a buttonhole bouquet. The floor cracked like a goblin telegraph. The banisters creaked as if people were going up and down the stairs. The wind in sudden gusts rattled the tin roof till it seemed like the tramp of an army. But I heard with my mind's ear once more the passionate love songs and snatches from operas which had of old so charmed me from this very window. I could not keep my eyes off this man. Dazed, I looked at him. Where had I known him? I seemed flooded by a tidal wave of memories. Of what? Bits of dreams? Sleeping or waking ones? Was it a tide of inherited memories surging through my veins with the hot blood of some ancestress who had, like me now, loved at first sight one like him, this man of graceful movement and head like an antique bust? Who could tell? I gazed at him, mad with vague, keen longing and remembrance, excited as with wine by the new and piquant charm of feeling the overwhelming power of his presence, yet seeing him wholly unaware of it, and even shy. I was under a spell, subtle as the scent of the blossoms which nestled, where I longed to lay my head upon his breast. When the hours of our fruitless waiting had passed, and we all stumbled down the winding, grass-grown steps from starlight through shadow into the gaslit street. I was dizzy with the intoxication of his glances and lay awake the rest of the night. Who was he? One of this crazy club. I wanted nothing to do with them. I resolved not to join them again. But just as I had waked all night, I dreamed all day. This, then, was love. To look into eyes of such dazzling enchantment that all else became dull. I could do nothing but think of him. I envied the girls in the Arabian lights, who could always send an old woman to tell a young man he was loved and bring him. I longed for the freedom of the birds of the air, who are not held in check by the straight jacket of custom which keeps us from blows or kisses at first sight. As the day wore on, 
I could not keep from going up there to look about in the light. The key had been left with me. I took it, but hardly meant to use it. I thought I would walk in the garden. The still, old place had an odd charm for me. San Francisco was gone. Its hum sounded faint, like a distant sea. It seemed far off, as if one of the vanished five cities of the plain, to me on this hilltop, alone, with the fierce wind and dazzling sky, better comrades and more akin than the breathless, thronged streets and crowding buildings. The clouds floated near. The garden shrubs whispered their secrets. It was so solitary that, though the sunshine was over all, and an army of wallflowers formed their torch-lit ranks round the door, there seemed to be no relief from a weight of loneliness. It seemed almost remote enough for death to overlook. Was it haunted? The house looked at me with its pleasant windows and lured me to go in. The sense of intrusion was too strong for me to go all over it. I went into the room where I sat the night before. I had not paused to mark the dusty gloom or to feel nervous when I happened to glance through the glass of the secretary. I bent to admire the writing thrust behind the worn green silk. I saw my own Christian name. I opened the doors. Fragments which had lain there by chance, so long, plainly worthless, at the mercy of the next tenant, whoever it may be. I took them by the right of my name of Rose. They were leaves torn from a notebook, mostly the record of a singer's daily practice. So many minutes to these exercises, or to those, or to songs, and so much to French and Italian. But here and there came these entries. Rose, sweet blossom in the wilderness of names, treated with fragrance of lovers' vows, folded in it, with hints of passionate meetings, and farewells embalmed in amber moonlights, of dusky old gardens at nightfall, whose satin-cheeked flowers, wakeful, pale, and tearful, are crumpled, flushed, and warm, tossing in their dreams. All sigh their hearts out for the day who loved and rode away. For a rose should have an ardent soul. She would not look at me now, but when skilled in my art, famous, rich, who knows? This evening I saw her, sitting in her window, looking lonely and sad, for her drooping head reminded me of a heavy-hearted flower. Could I but be her sheltering and supporting leaf? For I am like the ground at the feet of my rose, no more able to come near her sweet lips, nor touch her dainty hand. Soon her curtains were drawn, into the moonlit space between our houses. From the depths of my heart I sang, Fesca's impassioned maiden at the window. I love her, but how can that serve her? The love of one, with no wealth beyond his silver tenor and his golden hope. She might as well be the wild rose who blushes in lonely woodlands, her sweet soul unblessing and unblessed, and dies with no knowledge of bliss 
that might have been hers. She may never know of the kisses I long to give her. It is strange to think of our cool unconsciousness, of precious treasures of heart and soul in those around us whom we never know. How hard is my fate! My mind is like a phantom battlefield, with this conflict carried on in silence. An awful, noiseless war, as of shadows. But to me, what dread realities! Sometimes I think I must break my bond with my cousin. What a cursed fool I was to bargain away my freedom for the sake of her money, for study here and in Europe. But love was to me only a name. When I made that contract, I had not seen Rose. To see Rose sitting here before me, to hear her say I love you, would be enough to come back for from another world. But what we miss here must be gone forever. We shall go down to earth and be raised again from her. But there is no resurrection birth for the things that never were. Sometimes I seem to live but to see her shadow on her curtain, her fitting form in the garden, or going in or out. Bliss and woe. Then I force myself to scales and exercises of the like sameness that may dull my senses like a narcotic. Last night, at my open window, I poured out my whole soul in the love songs of Beethoven and Schubert. Edith supposed I was making out my hours of practice. The only neighbors near enough to hear may have thought me mad, but I did not care. I had seen her lighted room grow dark. I knew my voice rang through her dreams. The nightingale singing to the rose, I thought. And was I not also leaning my breast against a thorn? My God, what an awful feeling is jealousy. Three days ago, through our open windows, I watched Rose with the suitor. It was plain that he was wooing, and that she, though it seemed not much caring, still she listened. I thought of the malediction from Halvey's Charles the Sixth. My teacher, an old opera singer, had told me how the spell of this fatal air followed the pointing finger of a tenor of the grand opera at Paris. Now, it was one of the audience who dropped in a fit. Then he signed downward, and the shock was upon a carpenter under a trap door. Again, reaching up, a scene shifter fell senseless. I burst into the solemn air. If ever such subtle influence worked, I meant it should now. I wish there could be poison in sound. I hated that unknown man. I willed him to lose his cause. I thought how Stradella's heavenly tones in his own hymn, the prayer of a bruised and rueful soul, changed the minds of those who had come to slay him. Could I make mine evil enough to crush that man's hopes? My song should be an alembic through which passion, hate, and despair could distill a strong and malign force. I shook. I grew afraid of my own voice, of my own soul. The man rose as if unwilling to leave. I willed him to go. I quaked from head to foot. Cold draughts beaded my brow. In the glass I caught sight of my uplifted menacing hand. 
and of my eyes, which were strange to me, with a fierce inward fire, like those of a wild beast that sees its prey. He went. I drew free breath. I felt as if I had been out of my body, and I did not find my voice for two days after. Can there be truth in the old saying that curses come home? How can I bear to drift away with no anchor in her life? Oh, it is too, too hard. I've studied so long. I owe too much to Cousin Edith. I must keep on. But I must earn enough to pay her. And then, when I return, I shall be free. Oh, Rose, shall I find you here the same? Heaven grant it. I go to study, to sing, so Edith thinks. But I, I am sure of but one thing. I go to return. I shall come back. End of section 16. Recording by Mary Scarnell.